I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we help you navigate complex technologies and their impacts on society through analysis and critique. This is episode 28. So recently, a Google senior software engineer named Blake Lemoine was placed on leave from the company after he publicly claimed that one of Google's projects, a chatbot system named Lambda, which is an acronym for Language Model for Dialogue Applications, Blake claimed that this chatbot system was sentient. A member of Google's responsible AI unit, Lemoine had been studying Lambda for evidence of ethical bias when he came to believe Lambda was sentient making these conclusions public in a series of blog posts. While I'll note that Lamont made this sentience conclusion not based on scientific or engineering analysis, but based on his religious beliefs as an ordained mystic Christian priest, I personally don't think Google's chatbot system is sentient. However, for the purpose of today's podcast, I do find it interesting that the AI programs we are creating these days, can convince humans that they are indeed sentient. In other words, we are now relating to systems of data and programming instructions, not as mere tools, but as types of people. Given that these software systems will be incorporated into other products, such as augmented reality, robots, self-driving cars, and the Internet of Things, how we interact with and understand technology is changing as well as how we interact with and understand ourselves. I think these advances in technology create profound opportunities as well as challenges for us as a society. So in today's podcast episode, I wanted to work through developing a better understanding of this world we are creating. And so to provide this foundation, we'll do a deep dive into the book, The Fourth Revolution, how the Infosphere is Reshaping Human Reality, and that is written by Luciano Floridi. Okay, let's dive in. Again, the author of today's deep dive book is Luciano Floridi, who is a professor of philosophy and ethics of information at the University of Oxford. And he's also a director of the Digital Ethics Lab of the Oxford Internet Institute, and he's also a distinguished research fellow of the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics of the Faculty of Philosophy and Research Associate and Fellow in Information Policy of the Department of Computer Science. In addition, he is the Faculty Fellow of the Alan Turing Institute and Chair of its Data Ethics Group. In the U.S., he is a Distinguished Scholar-in-Residence in the Department of Economics at American University in Washington, D.C. He's the author of many papers and a number of books, and his main research interests center on information, computer, and digital ethics. So as you can imagine with that background, <laughs> with his book, The Fourth Revolution, How the Infosphere is Reshaping Human Reality, Floridi takes a philosophical approach, though... I will say this is not your typical academic philosophy book. 
in his book, Floridi actually tries to make his discussion accessible for non-philosophers because he says he feels it is critical for us to develop a better understanding of where technology is taking us as a society. Floridi's main argument in the book is that the development of and dependence on ICTs, or Information and Computing Technologies, ICT, has ushered humanity into an information revolution, which is drastically affecting how we live in the world. Now, there are three main pillars to Floridi's argument in justifying this claim. And these pillars are hyperhistory, the infosphere, and on life. And so I thought we would work through each of these concepts in today's podcast. So the first concept we'll discuss is what Floridi means by hyperhistory. There's no doubt that we not only generate massive amounts of new information each day, but also having access to the internet, which allows access to that information, is increasingly integral to our lives. For example, in some stats I found, business intelligence and data analytics company Domo.com reported that in 2018, for every single minute of every single day in that year, the internet handled over 3 million gigabytes of traffic. People sent almost 500,000 tweets and 160 million emails and 400 hours of video were uploaded to YouTube. And again, that was every minute of every day in 2018. And certainly those numbers are higher in 2022. In fact, in the book, Floridi says that this generation of and dependence on information is of a different nature than in our past. So to get at this, Floridi says we can think of the period of human existence before we learn to write and record our own history as, well, he calls it prehistory. Our history, therefore, is a result of humanity being able to write down and store information about us in the world. From using clay tablets in the Bronze Age to more modern pen and paper, the printing press, computers, and digital tablets. Our progress was in part a function of this so-called information age, our progress as a culture. Yet, Floridi argues that the nature of our relationship with the information we generate now has changed. He says that we have moved to a period of hyperhistory, not history, hyperhistory, where our progress as humans is mostly dependent on generating, storing, and analyzing and using that information. For example, he says, all members of the G7 group, namely Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States qualify as hyperhistorical societies because in each country, at least 70% of the gross domestic product, or GDP, the value of goods and services produced in a country, depends on intangible goods, which are information-related, rather than on material goods, which are the physical output of agricultural or manufacturing processes. Hyperhistorical societies survive by creating digital products and services. Our jobs and economies are dependent on bits, not atoms. So this transition from history to hyperhistory has been fueled by three technological trends. First, Moore's Law, which despite its common name, it's not really a law, but it's an empirical observation. 
Moore's law says that the number of transistors that are able to fit on an integrated circuit doubles approximately every two years. This means that essentially computing power is increasing exponentially over time. Second, not only is computing power increasing exponentially, but there is also an exponential decrease in the cost of that computing power over time. This means that increasingly more powerful computing technologies are available to more people over time. We can afford it, which means that your smartphone is millions of times more powerful than the computers used to send astronauts to the moon in the 1960s, and that your car likely has more than 50 computers in it. We are in an era of big data surrounded by and reliant on the Internet of Things to communicate and process that data. Finally, a third technological trend fueling the transition to hyperhistory is known as Metcalfe's Law, which says that the value of a computer network increases by the square of the number of computing nodes on the network. In other words, the value of a network with two computers would be four. Two squared is four. The value of a network with three computers would be nine. Three squared is nine. And the value of a network with 10 computers would be 100. I'll leave it as an exercise for you to do the math. With the explosion of new computers, iPads, smartwatches, smartphones, cars, cameras, and other Internet of Things devices all connecting to the Internet, the value of this network over time is essentially a vertical line to the outer space. The internet is extremely valuable and therefore has become central to our economy and social lives. Thus, according to Floridi, because of these factors, today we are experiencing a shift from history to hyperhistory, which means that we are creating a fundamentally different world in which we are living. And that fundamentally different world is something Floridi calls the infosphere. Now, back in the Techno Slipstream podcast episode number six, we discuss the concept of technological mediation, which is a framework for understanding how humans interact with and are affected by technology. So back then we discussed the different relationships we might have with technology. For example, I read a thermometer in order to know something about the world. I do not use the thermometer to view the world like I would with a pair of glasses, but instead I learn about the world by interpreting the thermometer. Don Eide calls this a hermeneutic relation. Now, there were other relations that we discussed in episode six. Please give it a listen if you haven't yet. And we also went on to discuss mediation theory by Peter Paul Verbeek in that episode. But now, Floridi approaches our relationships with technology a little bit differently than Eide and Verbeek. To Floridi, if I put on my glasses to be able to read a book, then I use those glasses, that technology, because the book prompts me to do so. Floridi calls a technology, such as a pair of reading glasses, that mediates between a user, me, and nature, the book. He calls that relationship a first-order technology. Another example of a first-order technology might be an umbrella that we use to keep us dry in the rain. These sorts of technologies are simple and utilitarian, and we've been using them throughout humanity since, I don't know, the first human ancestor split some firewood with an axe. 
And I'll just note that humans are not the only users of first-order technologies. Crows, for example, we pick a particular stick to use it as a tool to recover food hidden in a wooden log. A second-order technology is one where instead of nature prompting the use of a particular technology, as with first-order technologies, instead another technology prompts the use of a technology. For example, Floridi suggests a simple example of second-order technology would be a screwdriver. A screwdriver mediates between the human user and a screw, and the screw is another technology. So a more sophisticated and significant example is that of an engine, which mediates between the human user to generate power for lots of other technologies that we attach to the engine. Now, a third order technology is interesting because here the human is taken out of the loop as the user and is replaced by a technology. So prime examples of third order technologies are found, I don't know, think of the Internet of Things or ICTs. So imagine a self-driving car communicating with other cars, with the road, sensors in the road, and cloud backend systems. So with third order technologies, the human is a peripheral consideration. We're out of the loop. The point of this thought exercise, thinking of technologies as parts of first order, second order, or third order systems, is that the interfaces and protocols of and used by the technologies which are functions of the technology's design, are very important because these interfaces and protocols determine the overall success of the system. And with ICTs, the interfaces and protocols are squarely centered and dependent on the flow of information. And this, then, brings us to Floridi's concept of the infosphere. As he says in the book, ICTs are modifying the very nature of, and hence what we mean by, reality, by transforming it into an infosphere. Infosphere is a neologism coined in the 1970s. It's based on biosphere, a term referring to that limited region of our planet that supports life. It's also a concept that is quickly evolving. Minimally, Infosphere denotes the whole informational environment constituted by all informational entities, their properties, interactions, processes, and mutual relations. It is an environment comparable to but different from cyberspace, which is only one of its subregions, since the infosphere also includes offline and analog spaces of information. Now, maximally, Infosphere is a concept that can also be used as synonymous with reality once we interpret the latter informationally. So what does this infosphere mean for us as far as how we live our lives? If you consider the technologies that Floridi highlights, such as ubiquitous computing, ambient intelligence, the Internet of Things, as well as you could throw in virtual reality and augmented reality, the trend is towards what Floridi calls on life. Now, here's what he means by on life. In the near future, the distinction between online and offline will become ever more blurred and then disappear. For example, it already makes little sense to ask whether one is online or offline when driving a car, following the instructions of a 
navigation system that is updating its database in real time. Now, I think that's an interesting observation that makes sense once this blurring is pointed out to us, this blurring between online and offline. Now, previously, this online versus offline distinction was binary. It was a binary choice. But for example, now, as I'm typing out these podcast episode notes, I'm periodically looking up references on various websites on the internet. My watch is letting me know when new emails arrive. My laptop is synchronizing backups in the cloud and Alexa is displaying current weather updates. Am I online or am I offline? In reality, neither or both. That is what Floridi means by on life. Today, our systems, devices, habits, and workflows are increasingly operating and occurring in a merger of the physical and the digital. Because of this merger, Floridi says we are increasingly looking at the world informationally because eventually the physical systems must interface with the digital so the information can flow. Or as Mr. Universe says in the movie Serenity, you can't stop the signal, Mal. Yet this informational world we are creating is causing some confusion, this transition. Consider the entire hysteria over digital currencies, especially Bitcoin-type currencies. Now, when I was in grad school, crypto meant cryptography. But these days, at least to the Silicon Valley bros, crypto means cryptocurrencies. But while I can own a book or a physical dollar coin, how can I own a digital dollar? How can I own the ones and zeros that make up a non-fungible token or NFT that make up a digital image of a bored ape? Why do we need blockchain technologies when we've already got distributed databases? No one seems to know for sure, though a lot of people certainly are spending lots of money to convince us of something. The point is we are transitioning to an informational world from a material world, and we don't yet know what this looks like. We're still working it out. But the point Floridi is getting at in arguing that ICTs are causing changes to our history, recall our discussion of hyperhistory, to our environment, recall our discussion of the infosphere, and to ourselves, recall our discussion of what he called on life, with our increasing dependence on a merger with information, Floridi says we are essentially becoming informational organisms. And as such, and setting aside again the distraction with cryptocurrencies, we have some serious looming issues in the informational world we are creating that we do need to address. The first issue is that of privacy. So on the internet, we too easily fell into the trap and habit of trading our private information, name, contact information, purchase history, browsing history, and more, all in exchange for free social media accounts, free email accounts, or the ability to play free video games. Floridi thinks we need to take our privacy more seriously. We've gotten too, too loose and too lax. Now, for safeguarding personal identity, Floridi seems to advocate the use of biometric data, such as scanning your fingerprint or iris, for authentication purposes rather than you know, arbitrary labels like passwords or social security numbers. Though to me, that suggestion just seems you could use both. <laughs> you don't have to give up one for the other. 
And in fact, if you use both, you've got now a two-factor authentication model that is common in the cybersecurity world. A password is something you know, and a fingerprint is something you have. And the use of both is much more secure than relying on either alone. But maybe Fluidity is not familiar with the cybersecurity models. A second issue Fluidity says that we need to deal with is that of intelligence. Now, I've seen some recent trends of people saying effectively that the internet and computers are making us dumber. Yet, Floridi provides some nuance here. He says, to blame ICTs for the dumbing down of our culture or the blunting of our minds is a bit like blaming cars for our obesity. It's not entirely mistaken, but it's a superficial observation. To better understand what's going on, he says, it's important to divide AI research into two tasks. The first task, what Floridi calls reproductive behaviors, is where we design AIs to reproduce the outcomes of our human intelligent behaviors. The second task in AI research, what Floridi calls productive behaviors, amounts to actually creating an artificial intelligence that is the equivalent of our own intelligence. We have been and are super successful at this first task. We can create AIs that can beat human opponents in checkers, chess, Go, multiplayer online games, and a whole lot more. Yet a program being able to reproduce what humans think of as intelligent behavior is different than actually being intelligent. So far, we've been really unsuccessful at the second task, producing intelligence in an AI program. As Floridi says in the book, data miners do not need to be intelligent to be successful. Thus, the internet and ICTs are not making us more dumb. It's just that we're choosing to adapt our systems and interfaces to the limited abilities of our AI and data processing systems. They aren't intelligence. We are stooping down to them. This adaptation and dependence is better understood if we look at the third issue Floridi says we need to deal with in our new informational world, and that's the issue of agency. Now, we've discussed agency in previous podcast episodes, but Floridi gives us a scenario by analogy that highlights our relationship with ICTs. He says, two people, A and H, are married, and they really wish to make their relationship work. A who does increasingly more work in the house, is inflexible, stubborn, intolerant of mistakes, and unlikely to change. Whereas H is just the opposite, but is also becoming increasingly lazier and dependent on A. The result is an unbalanced situation in which A ends up shaping the relationship and distorting H's behaviors, practically if not purposefully. If the marriage works, that is because it is carefully tailored around A. Now, hopefully you guessed that in this marriage scenario, A stands for AI and H stands for humanity. So far, humans have not put much effort into our AI interfaces. We take the lazy approach and force everyone to bend to the inflexible, stubborn, intolerant, and unchanging machine interfaces, systems, and companions. 
this has been a mistake. And of course, we humans have agency to change our designs and readjust our priorities so that we focus on important goals. As we've discussed in previous podcast episodes, going forwards, we should be improving the interfaces and internal designs of AI regarding ethics, equity, safety, bias, and transparency, so that instead of us having to adapt and lower ourselves to the machines, instead we should create systems that allow humans and machines to be better together, to overcome the faults of not only the machine, but also the faults of human nature. And so hopefully by now, after this discussion of Luciano Floridi's book, The Fourth Revolution, How the Infosphere is Reshaping Human Reality, you can see that humans are not outside the infosphere. We are inside it. We are no longer distinct and separate from the human-machine interface. We must change the designs of our AI systems, I think, and advocate for. And to do that will require changing our education. Very important to me. As Floridi says, this requires a change in how we perceive ourselves and our roles with respect to reality what we consider worth our respect and care, and how we might negotiate a new alliance between the natural and the artificial. It will require a serious reflection on the human project and a critical review of our current narratives at the individual, social, and political levels. Now, if you've been listening to these podcast episodes, that is what the Techno Slipstream Project is all about. And so that's where we'll wrap up this episode on that note. This podcast episode is the fourth in our current series of deep dives. You can see the complete list over on our Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Kendall Giles. You can also find there other writings and discussions as well as the podcast episode transcripts. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream. <laughs>